Welcome to the Leadership for Broadening Participation podcast. This podcast is part of the NSF-funded Golden Project, Geosciences Opportunities for Leadership in Diversity and Equity Network, supporting the post-award training and development for gold PIs. We know this from hard-won experience. Broadening participation does not happen just by telling others how to be. The message of the last episode, Be the Cousin, talked about how to listen to and advise others. But this necessary skill is not the only thing we need. The authority to be the cousin begins with an authenticity of self. We must have our own internal guidance system in order to validly guide others. Authenticity is not as simple as just be yourself. It's not a uniform expression of some essential secret sauce. In fact, behaving exactly the same way regardless of context typically represents a lack of leadership. Authentic leadership means expressing oneself skillfully in context. Authentic leadership is particularly important in broadening participation efforts. Creating diverse, equitable, and inclusive environments is risky business, full of mistakes, conflict, and failures. Navigating difference is, by definition, navigating a gap in knowledge, awareness, and perspective, and we inevitably fall through that gap. Authenticity allows us to take these risks, weather our mistakes, and find our way through to the other side. Each of the leaders we interviewed talked about the experiences and forces that shaped them and the processes by which they had come to understand their passion and skills, their leadership styles, and what they best have to offer as leaders. In this episode, we hear Mary, Wendy, and Carolyn each talk about specific ways that they grappled with who they are as people and as leaders. A lot of what my leadership has been has been a leading by example. So in a faculty meeting setting, there are new faculty who are just brand new to campus. There are senior faculty who've been here a very, very long time, mostly male, but maybe one female. And so it was very difficult for the younger group to come in. And I made it very clear when I started here three years ago that when we ran a faculty meeting, I want to hear from everybody. Let's get all the voices on the table. And, and, and let's not argue and discuss and put people down. Let's, let's get the voices on the table. We have a few couple periodic flare-ups where I have to step back and say, okay, now do I need to address this a little bit more head-on? And there's been an expectation by faculty that they're going to bring people in and work with them the exact way that they've always worked with the white male I'm thinking of graduate students here, actually, largely, but that they're going to just do it the same way. And that doesn't always work. So some of these people are coming from different educational systems. They have different backgrounds. And so my involvement, again, is, and this is part of my style of a a more quiet leadership style, but it's been in either one-on-one conversations with the faculty who are struggling, or sometimes it's in an email a quiet, well, here's, here's how I would handle that. 
you know, or I've run into that situation in the past. And I think if we're just patient, or this is a student who actually responds very well when you work with them one-on-one, or somehow just giving, uh, I guess I'd call sort of a gentle nudge, kind of guiding with a gentle push, as opposed to coming in in a kind of hard, firm, geez, guys, you can't do it that way. And it's been a more gentle approach. And whether that's the right one or not, I don't know. And so then, you know, then moving into kind of a field camp situation, and this year in Montana, so not every year is like this, but our snow started in late October, and today was actually forecast to snow, but it's been raining. We're done with field trips, but field camp starts in 10 days or something. But I heard the young faculty saying, well, we've got to toughen these kids up. They're saying we should cancel the trip. We need to toughen them up. As a department head, there's the overarching thing about safety. So wait a second, we don't want to put these students out in a situation where they're going to get hypothermia. But then, you know, taking it down to the next level, okay, so if we know we're not going to get hypothermia, but we still have students with a lot of concern, how do we address that? And so again, for me, that's where kind of training, you know, not not a formal training for these young young faculty coming in, but some gentle nudges and suggestions and kind of leading by example again, it's has been my approach. Where did that style come from in you? Um, I don't know. And sometimes I I kind of beat myself up about that being my style because I'd sort of like to walk in and be really bold and just lay things out, except that I I think part of me is fearful of of the criticism of just exposing myself that way, you know, making a boo-boo and doing it that, that just backfires because I've come out boldly and then said the wrong thing or tried to redirect somebody who maybe I didn't fully understand why they were doing something the way they were doing it. And sometimes I feel like it's worked against me in administration because people will say, oh, you're not a leader because you're being quiet. And I'm not always quiet. When I was an assistant professor, I had a person call me and I wanted, oh, she'd been a reviewer of one of my NSF proposals. And she'd also been in graduate school at MIT, but maybe three years ahead of me. So I didn't know her super well. But she said, well, I just wanted to call you because I thought I could give you some advice about you know, how you presented this proposal. But she said, I also want to warn you that, you know, it's really tough as a, as a woman because you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. If you go into a faculty meeting and you're bold and you, you know, come forward with big, strong ideas, they're ultimately going to use the B word and, or whatever and, and dismiss you. But if you come in and you're quiet and just listen and take it all in as your first or second year assistant professor, they're going to think you're too mousy and not strong enough to be a good faculty member and they'll dismiss you. And I don't remember her having an answer because I felt like, well, then what? <laughs> you know, I can't go this way and I can't go that way. I also, so I'm only five feet tall. I had somebody once say, well, it's going to be really tough to make it because nobody listens to a short person. <laughs> and I, I forget that I'm short. So that, that works in my favor. But uh, anyway. Well, as a reflection, I actually think that what I hear from you is that you took that unanswered question, right? I've got this thread at one side of the B word and this thread at the other side of the mouse. Yeah. And somehow I have to take the space in between them and work it and make yeah. it productive. And 
even though I hear you on the one hand wondering if you're doing it right, I also did hear you earlier describing yourself with some level of confidence and applying that leadership style in really effective ways. So I heard the commitment you've made to being effective with who you are and what you have to bring to the situation. So give yourself credit for that. Okay. (laughs) Well, thanks. I want to jump in here and get part of this as well, Um, because as I'm listening to you, Mary, the thing that comes to mind is that old adage, to thine own self be true. And what I see and, and what I hear you saying is that you are aware that there are two extremes of how women are perceived in leadership, but that you show up as your authentic self. And I think that's what what comes through. And I think the strength in that for those of us who do this work in diversity is in refusing to let others pull you out of that. And because sometimes hostile spaces where we have to, to do that work can fundamentally shift who you are or who you think you have to be in order to make a point or in order to get buy-in or in order to bring someone over to your way of thinking. And I think that the better leaders of leaders who do work in broadening participation just draw the line in the sand and absolutely refuse to allow anyone to draw them in Mm. to being something other than what they essentially are for themselves. That's what I heard. Yeah, I think that's true. I live where I live in the space in between. You know, but the rest of my personal story is that <laughs> I, in late January, got asked to step down as department head here. And so I get really discouraged. For me, the, the good part is that now I'm, I'm at a point in my career, I'm a full professor, I'm well paid, my kids are out of the house, I only have one in college for another two months, and I've got these projects, I mean, hopefully Senegal will come through. I'm back in Nepal again, this project, and I guess I'm hoping there will be things that will build out of this project because there's still clearly a need and we're not going to solve it in one institute and things like that. But now I'm going to be freed up from filling out forms and signing every document. But on the other hand, so it depends what mood you catch me in, I'm just ticked off that there's no reason and I was not given a reason. 10 days ago, we had our department banquet, and I, I got two standing ovations from the faculty and the students. It was our scholarship thing where I'm giving out the scholarship. So when I was invited to the stage, there was just this, you know, standing ovation, which, you know, made me feel good. But it's like, so what is this disconnect in the university world where everything's going so great, and then somebody pulls the rug? On the other hand, I'd much rather have had support and appreciation from the students and faculty and have the dean not like me than the other way around. But this is where, again, there's sometimes one step forward and two steps back. And of course, the person he's putting in place is a younger white male. I'm sorry, Mary. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah, I am. And and it's certainly what, what we all experience. And for being who we are and being our authentic selves, we sometimes take hits for that. And I'm sorry that that happened to you. And I guess, you know, when you think of it in the big picture, 
going back to inclusion and just the field experiences or any other thing where we might build a wall or there have been walls that we're now trying to tear down, how many people got the rug pulled out when they were taking undergraduate structural geology or something so they never even got to be the department head or the dean and their rug was pulled out early on. And so that's what's just unacceptable. But it's not over yet. Right. My mother moved to Bozeman. She's 86, and she lives down the street from me. And so two nights after I got this news, I was. she came to my house for dinner, and we were working on making a salad. And so I said to her, I said, hey, Mom, yesterday I got fired. And there's silence. And she's a little hard of hearing. So I'm thinking, did she hear me? And I just wait. And she, then she chuckles, just a little laugh. And she says, you're kidding, right? Because she's seen me operate here and she's seen the support from students and everything. And I said, no, mom, actually, I'm not kidding. And so again, there's silence. And then she just bursts out laughing. And at that point, I just feel kind of hurt. It's like, you're my mom. You know, if somebody's going to support me and help me out here, you're not supposed to be laughing. And so I turn and I look at her and she gets this big smile and she says, something really good's going to come out of this. <laughs> so it's like, what can you say to that? I feel the same way. Like you said, I think we've all experienced these things and all of life is dealing with what comes our way. You know, how do we deal with it? Do we crawl in a hole or do we pick ourselves up and kind of keep going? It's also remembering, you know, when you do the work about inclusion, part of the work is to say, here's a space and everybody should be able to come into it. But then when you are a leader doing work on inclusion, you're saying this space actually shouldn't exist as it is. It's not just about everybody coming in. It's about the space itself changing. And that's a dangerous thing to do. It can be a badge of courage to come up against the system that says, no, I'm not going to let you change me because it's a signal that you are doing something right. When I was at Kansas State, we worked with another institution on a camp, and the guy would just kind of come out and say, okay, here we are, go measure that section. And students wouldn't know what he was talking about. And then they would learn the mechanics of, oh, here's how we measure it, whether it was with a tape or a Jacob staff or whatever the tools were to get the numbers down. But nobody ever talked to them about why would a geologist go up to an area like this and measure a section? And so I remember the, I went out, I was sort of just an observer at that camp. I never was a, an official teacher or leader of the camp. But the first year, I just observed all this. The second year, I just said, I am stepping in and I'm going to just kind of interrupt him and then talk with the students and get them to help tell us, why would somebody do this? And just the explanation. And I think students appreciated that and they knew what they were doing. That's a bold move, Mary. Don't sell yourself short on your capacity for bold. Okay. But see, it took mm -hmm. two years. I didn't do it the first. Sometimes it takes two years because it takes that long to observe in order to make the bold move work. Like Mary, Wendy talked about the process of reconciling external messages and expectation with one's own reality. And Kelly and I remember a moment at the Ideas Lab when Wendy's boldness led the way. I, I now work with a lot of students who say they struggle. They feel like they can't be Indigenous when they're in college. They can't use those two worlds together. 
And what happens? They quit school and go home because you have to be who you are. If you have to push that aside, then you're not going to succeed because you're missing a huge part of yourself. And it is not, it's not easy to say, I'm an indigenous scientist and I'm going to work on this using your Western tools, but I'm also going to tie my knowledge into it. And I struggled with that all through graduate school as well. My advisor would not read my seventh chapter of my dissertation because it was about traditional knowledge and said it didn't matter. But it mattered to me and it was going in there one way or another. I wasn't asking if I could put it in there. I put it in there because it's part of who I am. It's part of the work I did. And so struggling with that, I took all these struggles and tried to tie it into one thing to teach students. You're going to come across this. You're not enough of this or enough of that. You have to be true to yourself or you're not going to succeed. And you're going to struggle every day. And those struggles lead to dark places. And we lose a lot of our youth because of it, because they don't know how to fit in. They don't know how to be okay with being an indigenous scientist or an indigenous whatever. They don't know how to walk in that Western world because they look how they look and how they feel. But we have to teach them to be okay with that. We started one of the sessions and you started it with, was it a song? Yeah. That willingness to be who you are puts a permission in the space. What you said earlier is true. We're always mask dancing. We're always putting one mask forward, hiding parts. Mm -hmm. But when I saw that in you, something in me relaxed and other parts of me just naturally came to the front. So thank you for that. It is one of your aspects of leadership that I see. I uh, wouldn't have normally done that. I did that because that the day before when we ended that session, like I, I felt like I was there to learn something and um, have this great experience with this diverse group of people, scientists. And you started hearing, well, what if they steal my idea? I just kept hearing that over and over and over and decided, you know, people need to realize we're a network now. We're here as a network and to work together and to collaborate. And yeah, there's risk. But that was the purpose of the whole ideas lab was this high risk environment. And, and like, like I started out with that song saying in our community, we don't all get along. Some people hate each other. <laughs> Some people fight all the time or they think they do. And so when we have gatherings, we start out with that song and say, remember, we're one people. We might not all get along, but we're one people with a common goal. And so that's why. I decided to do that because I really had to think about that a lot because I, I did not really want to get up there and do that. But I also knew if we continued the way we were, we were going to end in a dark spot, a dark place. And people were going to be worried about their ideas being stolen or something. And, and I just, that's not the way to start this. We needed to do it in a good way and be open and take that risk because without that risk, we don't push forward. I think that one of the things that I'm going to walk away from this conversation with Wendy is um, just how powerful your authenticity and your presence actually is. What I also like about your story is that in STEM, 
there is this false understanding that it is objective, that we are objective, that we must come to the space as objective individuals as if that's possible. And our attack against that is, no, it is who I am that makes me the better scientist. And it is having me as I am on the team that makes what we do better science. So that that scene that, that you just talked about at the ideas lab, your approach made for better ideas in the end of the ideas lab. That's what I'm walking away with. Yeah, they asked me to sing again, but I told them no. <laughs> I wasn't ready. <laughs> Which is part of it too, right? Our authenticity has to come from us. It can't be because someone like something about us and now gets to dictate it or control it or require it of us. Yeah. I think it's back to being sincere about what you're doing, right? When you're not, it's visible and it colors the rest of your interactions with people. If people can feel that energy, whether it's good or bad, they can feel that energy and your outcomes are a reflection of that energy, whether you realize it or not, it is. I do think it's one of the overarching questions as we, as we look to train broadening participation leaders mm-hmm. from and in academia and in STEM, where, first of all, that authenticity or sincerity is not necessarily valued. It's not absent, right. but it's not cultivated. Mm-hmm. And whether it's money or credit or recognition, there's all these other terms that the pressure is on. And how do we teach people to navigate those pressures and through that navigation find the courage to be their authentic self? It almost feels like the bottom line question that we're asking in this whole podcast. Yeah. You're asking people to acknowledge their biases and show us their cards, right? And they don't necessarily want to do that because it may be, they may lose that idea to somebody else. They may lose the credit to somebody else or they may reveal a part of themselves they don't want to show. Maybe they don't want people to see that part of them. And, and how do we get people to do that? I don't know. Well, I don't think any of us right here know the whole answer. Yeah. But that there are parts of the answer that you do know. And there's parts that Kelly knows and I yeah. have some inklings. We just have to keep putting them together. How do we have the courage to be our authentic self? How do we learn to navigate the risks that come with that? In this next segment, Kelly talks with Carolyn about how she navigated her identity as a scientist amidst the expectations of academia. You mentioned when you were at NASA, there was a moment when you decided you didn't want to be a scientist. Mm -hmm. Was it a moment or was it an accumulation of other moments that brought you to that? It was a long road. You know, it's funny. I, I never intended to do a PhD. I kind of got to about maybe four months from graduation and thought, what the hell am I going to (laughs) do? And then, you know, people told me I was good enough. And so I thought, well, may as well go and interview. And there was this amazing project, um, which was commissioning a brand new instrument on a telescope. 
which was a super exciting instrument that was going to be taking about a thousand frames per second and we were going to actually be able to watch the evolution of binary stars and it was just it was a really cool project i'm like yes i want to do that i'm not done learning yet it's super cool i want to do that so i went and did a phd and that was rough for me I don't think anybody around me realized how rough it was because I kind of kept it to myself quite a lot. But my supervisor at the time was exceptionally intelligent. I mean, he's one of the smartest men I know. and He's a very, very nice man. And I feel like he started explanations here and I was still down here. <laughs> so I always felt like I was struggling to, to bridge that gap a little bit. I think that I stuck with astronomy because I spent six months um, as an intern in California in my last year of my PhD. It was just before my last year of my PhD. And that six months was quite revolutionary for me in that my supervisor there treated me as an equal and he really valued my opinion. He treated me as a scientist as opposed to a student. And he was an exceptional mentor. I mean, he was just spectacular. And so we ended up as a very collaborative team doing that work. And he offered me a postdoc position after I graduated. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I really want to go work for NASA. It's a brand new telescope. It's super exciting. I've got this guy who thinks that I'm really good at my job. He's a great mentor. It's in California. You know, <laughs> what is there to say no to here, right? And it's working for NASA. I mean, come on. So um, I absolutely went out doing that. But I think what those two years gave me was a real realization this wasn't what I wanted to do. And it was a gradual thing. I mean, I'd always wanted to do some kind of education and outreach because I love teaching. I love talking to kids. I love working with the public and, and doing that outreach piece. And I also realized as I was working with my fellow postdocs that they were so excited about their research. And I was interested in it, but I wasn't reading research papers at 10 o'clock at night because I couldn't bear to not read them, you know, which is what my colleagues were doing. And I'm like, no, you know, I was reading education papers at 10 o'clock at night because I was super excited. And I'm like, what, why am I doing this if this is not what I am excited about and what I really want to make my career in? Because I'm good at this, you know, I mean, that's one of the reasons I stay so long is I'm good at it, but I just don't love it. And so I think realizing that was fairly easy. The hard part was getting over the biases that people have that if you leave research, and if you don't want to be a professor, that you're somehow failing, that, you know, you leave research because you're not good enough at it. And, that you know, education and outreach is a lesser thing. And I absolutely had all of that ingrained in me from all the time, you know, from when I entered university all the way through my postdoc. And so getting over my own biases about that and just saying, you know what? If that's what people think of me, then that is what it is, whatever. You know, I know that I'm good at other things as well. And this is not where I want to make my career. This is not going to make me happy. And so that to me was, that was the hard part. And I think funnily enough, the fact that I'm gay really helped with that. Because like the coming out process of being gay, <laughs> it was like the coming out process of like, maybe I don't want to be a scientist. And it's like, oh my goodness me, are people going to hate me? And, you know, are people going to accept me for this? Are they going to think lesser of me? But I, I, you know, I really credit my being gay actually to a huge amount of wonderful things in my life. Because I think it's given me the bravery to do so many different things that I would never have done. Um, yeah, there's a lot around that. <laughs> It comes down to this. You can't lead inclusively if you're not including yourself. Mary talked about the dilemmas of authentic leadership. Carolyn talked about the many layers and kinds of coming out and the ways that our bravest moments, for her, coming out as gay, make more authenticity possible. In closing, we return briefly to Wendy. 
When we asked her how she learned to be bold and to teach her students to be fully themselves, she pointed to her experience navigating her own identity in her family and community. I had to be okay with being a Haida woman in my community with green eyes, light skin, and blonde hair, but I was still a Haida woman. And that took a long time. It wasn't easy, but again, I had my, my nana and my aunties who it's okay. Be who you are. Who cares? You care. So do what you care about. You care. So do what you care about. We called this episode, Be the Auntie, because leaders of broadening participation efforts need to speak with this voice as well, to themselves and to those they are leading. We'll learn more about Wendy's story in the next episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leadership for Broadening Participation, copyright 2018, Cardio Group, LLC. We would like to thank the Gold Project leaders for the insight from their interviews and the Golden community for their support and inspiration. Special thanks to Diana Cardia and Kelly Mack for leading the professional development aspect of Golden and for producing these podcasts. Thanks to Karen Williams for graphic design and Cindy Glover for editing and technical support. Music is by Kit Kat Club under a Creative Commons license. This material is based upon work supported by the National Science Foundation under grant number 1748340. Any opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this material are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Science Foundation.